good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Uh, welcome to Better Place, Talking International Law, uh, with me, Jonathan Kolib. Um, welcome back. Uh, we hope you're all safe and well, wherever you are um, tuning in from around the globe. Today, I am so thrilled to have uh, a dear friend, Yashri Nadarama. Uh, am I allowed to call you just Shri from now on? Shri, please, yes, Shri. yeah. Shri Nadaraja. Um, she's got a um, one of the biggest hearts uh, I've met, uh, and she has channeled that uh, into a career focused on protecting the most vulnerable uh, women and children in, in situations of armed conflict. Um, uh, thank you for joining us today, Shri. Thank you, Johnny, uh, for reaching out uh, to me and uh, thinking about me and considering me for this uh, wonderful initiative of yours. Uh, like you said, you know, we've known each other for, for a very long time. So yeah. I am- Let's, let's I not am the... count the years. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so I'm really honored uh, to be here and uh, happy to contribute. Yeah, well, yeah, uh, thank you. Um, uh, again, technology is amazing. Uh, Shri's sitting in um, in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia at the moment. I'm in Melbourne, Australia. It's amazing that we get to connect like this. So um, thank you to technology and to Zoom. Let me share a little bit of your formal uh, bio, Shri, so people can get a sense of who you are and then we can spend some time sort of unpacking it. Um, so, Jayashree uh, Nataraja, Shri, ha has had um, an incredible career in the, in the realm of, in my words, the civilian protection of armed conflict. Shri has worked for various UN agencies and offices, including the Office of the Special Representative of the Secretary General for Children and Armed Conflict, the Office of the UN Secretary General uh, on Sexual Violence in Armed Conflict, for the uh, United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF, uh, and for the UN Development Programme, the UNDP. In those roles, she's worked on protecting women and children uh, and civilians more generally in conflict-affected areas uh, uh, around the globe. She has done so in New York, in uh, UNHQ, uh, but she has also done so in the field as well. Most recently, I think, uh, helping or leading the effort to reintegrate children um, on the Filipino island of Mindanao after the Bangsamoro peace, peace Accords were signed. Uh, Jayashree has undergraduate degrees from, uh, I didn't know this, from Middlesex University in the United Kingdom uh, and an MBA from, is it Bremen University in Germany uh, and uh, where I do know Shri from, and I can attest to this, she does have an MA in Peace and Conflict Studies uh, from the University of California, Berkeley, where she attended as a recipient of the Rotary World Peace Fellowship. Um, it's a wonderful CV. Um, did I miss anything, Shri? <laughs> That's a lot already. <laughs> so, um, uh, Two, two, two follow-up questions. One, uh, tell, tell us something that isn't on your CV. Um, that isn't on my CV? Oh, yeah, <laughs> like, uh, 
what, what, what are you proud of that, that you, 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 you know, that you haven't put on the CV? Well, I would say everything. Um, I would say motherhood, right? So that trumps everything that I've done so far, I think. You know, I think it's, to be honest, I think it's even more stressful than having to uh, get an arm group to release children. <laughs> so, yeah, um, but it's a wonderful experience. And, uh, you know, it's a new experience for me. And uh, I'm just... Yeah. I'm just um, happily uh, doing motherhood at the moment. Yeah. Uh, that's fantastic. Yes, parenting is, is hard. Um, and you are the mother of a three-year-old as well. So a three-year-old, uh, yes. Yes, uh, it's an interesting phase. Um, yeah. keeps, you, keeps you on your toes. Yes, or exhausted uh, and lying, lying flat uh, on your back, either one. <laughs> Um, um, fantastic. Oh, I'm so glad you, um, you mentioned that. I think that's, that's really important. Uh, parenthood and motherhood. Um, and maybe we can circle back to that um, as well later on. Um, my other sort of follow-up question, what's your favourite ice cream flavour? Oh, oh, that's a good question. Uh, I love the raspberry ripple. Do you know that one? So it's like vanilla, but it's got the raspberry yeah. through it. Okay, yeah, very good. Right. Yeah. All right. Uh, I love hearing other people's ice cream flavors. Uh, fantastic. What's, what's yours? No, no, I asked the questions. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, Shri, uh, peppermint choc chip has to be my favorite ice cream flavor. Peppermint choc chip. Um, Oh, that's okay. I, I, I can sense disdain. That's all right. That's fine. I'm comfortable. Um, Shri, now, um, I, I, when I pitched you this conversation, I mentioned that this was for international law students, students of international law. You don't have a law degree. I don't. Do you? So, um, does international law practitioner, is that a label that, that sits comfortably with you? Uh, as in, uh, do you describe yourself in that, in those terms? Not really, to be honest. Um, although I know that in my work, uh, I am guided um, by international law, and obviously a lot of a lot of the work that we do um, relates to accountability, right, and ending impunity for violations against women and children, and that's international law. So I, you know, the work is is guided by by the law and also grounded in the law. So mm. I guess I guess yeah. While I don't necessarily think of myself as a, as an international law practitioner, but um, but yeah, you know, I think uh, that that's that's what we do, right? Right, right. And do you, um, or do, do you, do you wish you had a law degree? Have, have there been uh, over the years where it's like, oh, a, a law degree would have come in handy here, or you know, or not real. No, that that's that's actually a, a very good question, and in fact, I I do wish I I had a law degree. Uh, many times uh, throughout my career, I 
you know, when I would sit in meetings, um, particularly with uh, diplomats, right, or, or government representatives, um, where I would, you know, where I would think like, hmm, you know, if I had a, an international law background, I could counter his arguments uh, better. So, yeah, certainly, I think um, having a, a law degree is, I think it's, it's really, it comes in handy. I mean, in, in like, yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm speaking in very simplistic terms, but I think in a career like with the UN, um, you know, a law degree goes a long way. Right. And um, gives you a lot of flexibility and room to maneuver in the system. So particularly if you want to pursue a career in the UN, uh, I think it's an asset. Okay. Um, so let's get a little bit about your journey, Shree. When you were back in high school, back in the day, um, what did you want to do when you grew up? Oh, I, <laughs> I did not know. <laughs> is the honest answer really i was looking for direction um and um i didn't know i didn't know what i wanted to do and which is why i did a degree in accounting and finance uh just because um but but i was really very actively involved in community service programs uh, from a very young age and that's that passion sort of you know um drove me right uh and i knew that in the long term um that's that's what i wanted to do something to do with bettering the lives of of uh, people on the ground of societies of individuals wherever I can and kind of take it to an international level so yeah. it took me a while to to sort of you know make my way uh, and find that path um, but I, I'm glad I did eventually yeah and, and so can you can, can you um, remember like was there a moment that really sort of made this career happen for you like, was there a, a specific inflection point? Um, yeah, if I look back, uh, I, I remember, so I was working in the private sector, right, uh, initially, and I was doing consulting, manage, management consulting, um, whatever that is, right? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and you're smiling, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I can see, I can see you. <laughs> Thought bubble there. Um, and, I was, and at one point, you know, I just uh, thought, like, what am I doing here, right? Mm. It, I wasn't getting any joy from it. I felt that we were not necessarily, I, I wouldn't say not being honest with our clients, right? But let's say we were stretching, <laughs> stretching our arguments to fit the needs of the clients. Mm. Um, and I realized it, it wasn't making me happy and I needed to leave. So, um uh yeah long story short i resigned the same day uh i applied to the un and i applied to another uh, international humanitarian agency based in malaysia called mercy malaysia and i got called in for an interview by both organizations um and i chose the un 
even though it, you know, it was actually a very low level uh, starting position, but it was yeah. okay. It was an entry point for me. And then the rest is history, as they yeah. say. So you gave up basically a larger salary, I presume, in management consulting. You, you actually took a position that maybe you might have thought was beneath you in, in some sense, uh, as you say, an entry level position, but that was your moment. Yeah. What, what was that? Do you remember the position? What was it? Uh, yeah, it was a business control assistant or something oh. like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I was, uh, um, you know, doing the budgets and, and the yeah. contracts and yeah, writing proposals, you know, which which was the interesting part of the job. Yeah. But I was also taking on a lot of, you know, the administrative type work. Um, mm. Yeah, but it was, it was okay, you know. It was, um, I don't advocate really sort of entering the UN and taking up any position um, okay. just because you want to work for the UN. Um, but, um, you know, I was also lucky that I was able to get the scholarship by virtue of having done some work with the UN, but also obviously with Rosary, right? Um, and that kind of transitioned me, helped me transition from being a local uh, employee to entering the international Right, right, okay. So, and I think we hear your, your son in the background. Um, all good, no, that's, that's it's all good. Um, this is life. Um, um, fantastic. Okay. And so you have had an amazing career uh, in the, primarily in the UN system uh, ever since. What, what career accomplishment are you most proud of? Uh, I would say my three years in Mindanao, Philippines, uh, was where I felt the most accomplished and most fulfilled uh, um, that, you know, was, it was, that was after oh sorry I, I just wanted to, to make so that was after 10 years being in UN headquarters wasn't it in New yes. York you yes. went to the field sorry I didn't mean to interrupt go on yes so yeah so I mean while I was in the, the headquarters you know because we we work in an office a political um office or the, the SRSG is a high level political advocate, right? And we provide technical support to our child protection advisors in the missions. So in peacekeeping missions. And so, you know, I undertook a lot of field missions uh, within that, uh, within that time, right? And at headquarters. Um, but um, as I said, uh, the three years in Mindanao was the most uh, fulfilled that I would felt. Um, what, what did you do there? What did you do there? And and what and yeah, tell us a little bit about that and yeah. your reflections on it. Right. So I I was um, leading the engagement with the Moro Islamic Liberation Front um, to on the recruitment and use of children. So they had. Um, recruited and used children in in the conflict, um, or as we say, children uh, are associated with with this group, 
right? Because the children are not necessarily only child soldiers, but many of the children also provide supporting roles to the group. Um, and, and the Moro Islamic Liberation Front uh, signed an agreement with the UN in 2009. Uh, but, but obviously, because of the uh, conflict that was ongoing uh, in Mindanao, um, they could not implement that agreement. So there were a lot of uh, starts and stops um, over the years. And uh, once they signed the um, comprehensive agreement uh, on the Banks of Moro, uh, they also realized that it was time for them to be serious about, um, about uh, actually implementing and complying with the agreement that they signed on, on children. Um, and you helped demobilize and, and reintegrate into their communities, I believe around 2000 children that were formerly associated with the MILF. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so, so I wouldn't say reintegrate because the kids, um, you know, the context in Mindanao is slightly different in terms of, because the, the children uh, are children of the adult combatants, right? So by virtue of that, they have become associated with the movement. And so the, it's not like the context in Africa where you see children um, being forcibly recruited uh, or abducted from their homes and then taken away from their communities. And so then you have to reintegrate them and reunite them with their families. In this case, the children were already living um, within the communities and, and with their families. Um, but we had to um, disassociate them or disengage them from the armed group. So, which also mean, uh, meant um, that they were no longer performing any military type roles for mm -hmm. the group. And um, so it was hard, as you can well imagine, right? Because when you walk into um, the community, which is also their military camps, uh, in a way, uh, you know, you may see some children in, in uniforms uh, or carrying weapons, but most of the children are in civilian clothes. So, um, it, you know, it really took three years to slowly, slowly work on, on, on the commanders, particularly uh, the local commanders, to, who knew who those children were and to yeah. get them to, to identify these children and then to disengage them. Yeah. And, and I, I know you, you've, you've left that work a few years back, but um, I think you have recently done another consultant, consultancy that took you back there, or at least virtually took you back to um, Mindanao. How are things going now in the middle of 2020? Are you optimistic? Uh, um, well, I, I, the, the last time I spoke to former friends and colleagues, um, who's still there. Uh, I think the, the situation, well, the COVID situation has affected them uh, quite badly. And so for the humanitarian agencies, you know, a lot of the work um, has been refocused, right, to, to COVID, uh, but, which is important. Um, but but um, since I left, um, you may have heard of the Marawi, Marawi siege, sorry. <laughs> Someone just crawled in front of the <laughs> camera. Uh, the Marawi siege um, and a lot of um, the more violent extremist armed groups uh, are still present uh, in the region and many of them have, 
have children amongst them. So that is um, a difficult, um, difficult. I mean, it's it's a challenge. I think you know, more challenging than than trying to get children out of from an armed group that has signed a peace agreement, as you you know, and who wants right. the international legitimacy and credibility, whereas these more violent extremist groups, um, you know, have have a different agenda. Right. Um, so yeah. yeah. So it, it's it's um, it's it's. It's stabilized in the sense that there is now a Bangsamoro government and they are taking responsibility for their, for their citizens and for the issues um, in their, you know, in, within their, their autonomous region. Mm -hmm. um, but we haven't seen a stop in fighting necessarily, uh, particularly in the island provinces. Um, and still there are quite a number of human rights violations. Mm. More work to be done. Um, oh, a lot more work, yeah. Let me take you back though to Turtle Bay, to UN headquarters in, uh, in New York. You spent a fair bit of time there. Um, well, uh, if I recall correctly, you had an office on the 35th floor of that very famous Secretariat building. 30, 31st, 31st. 31st, excuse me. Yeah, uh, 31st, yeah. I gave you a promotion. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> what, are, what are your memories working of that, uh, at that place? Oh, wow. Um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a very fast moving, right? A fast paced environment. Um, there is, uh, there's just lots of, lots of work, lots of important people, I guess, or people who perceive themselves to be important, if I can. <laughs> I can say that. Uh, we may need to edit that out later. But anyway, uh, <laughs> you didn't um, name names yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a lot of meetings, right? Uh, because that's where um, all the planning takes place, mm. right? Um, a lot of churning out of reports, um, and but uh, you know, but having said all of that, uh, it's really, it's really. Um, it's 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 for me it was it was uh, a very um, a space where I learned a lot right mm. uh, it's it's a steep learning curve um, you're there you are you have to go out and meet partner organizations you have to go out and and mm. speak to member states uh, who are you know who are representing parties to the conflict really because you know um, they may come from countries where their state security forces are the ones who are committing violations right um, of international law and so uh, we you know and i was primarily uh, responsible for drafting the secretary general's report for children in armed conflict and later on sexual violence in conflict that was um, deliberated by the Security Council. And, and as part of that process, um, once we have the draft text of all the violations uh, taking place in that country situation, we have to sit down with um, their representative and share that information with them and allow them the opportunity to provide, um, you know, their own own sort of uh, rebuttal um, or, or, or any other statistics or data that they may 
feel is the more accurate information or right um and your draft may may go through a few iterations based on those conversations before it's finally made public it would yes it would go through it would go through several more iterations um but we would not change the facts because the information you know we may add information about the measures that the government has taken to address those concerns mm. but um but the the information comes from a system that's implemented in the country right that's led by the un in the country concerned it's uh, it's called the monitoring and reporting system and all that information that's gathered by the un um and our partners in a country um is verified information and the un stands by that information and so by the time it comes to headquarters it's you know it's solid information and so with that information doesn't change what changes um is really the you know the the opportunity for the country to give us um the yeah any relevant text on measures that they took to address those concerns so so uh, you, you raised uh, sort of the issue of politics and engaging um country representatives on these reports i mean civil society every year i know um sort of wait with bated breath for the official children and armed conflict report for example and about who would be named named which countries or armed groups would be um and there have been um some i would say well founded accusations in the past that politics have gotten in the way actually of you know certain countries being named and shamed um one country um in particular uh the the word on the street was that they were threatening to withhold funds from the UN organization if they were named and shamed do you have i, I don't you know you don't have to uh, verify those uh reports or not but do you have any sort of reflections on on that Yes, I mean so you uh yeah, I know which country you're referring to and uh I I I read I read the the news. <laughs> uh and I think if I remember correctly that country was um ultimately put on the list uh the following year. Um but the list has uh, after my time I think the list has has morphed into something slightly different. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Two two annexes, not just one. Um, yes. That, yeah. Um, the, I think there were two annexes before as well, but I think okay. now it's also um, there's. I think there's a column where it um, highlights the measures that these countries have taken. I think. Right. Uh, and so I believe the country is off the list again this yeah. year. I mean it's it's, it's interesting I mean yes. and I don't I don't want to get you um in delicate you know in hot water but but it is interesting anyway the interplay between the politics and um and and the facts um yeah. and perhaps it's not um the accusation is not that there were facts that were um misquoted or misconstrued in these reports but that you know there were certain choices made about how facts are going to be represented or just simply not 
represented and just omitted in the yeah. first place. Um, yeah. So, and that interplay yeah, between, you know, that you and you are in the belly of the beast. Uh, I feel like, and and that tension between politics and funding and country support for what you do um, with some more pure, straightforward advocacy based on the facts. Um, you you were at that interface between the politics. I was. And I was, and sometimes it was very frustrating um, you know and so and sometimes you can um, you 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 unable to sort of get what you want the first year you know if, despite having all that information so it's also a step-by-step -step process right mm -hmm. so maybe the first year we might get to include one paragraph on that country in the report um, and then you know that gets that country into the door in uh, in an SG's report to the council, which is what countries try to not get themselves into, right? Because once you, <laughs> once you feature in the SG's uh, annual report, that means it's harder to get yourself out of it. So that's 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 where the sort of the, the politics takes place before that even right, happens before the mm. drafting of the report even happens. Um, so getting into the report is, is already progress, right? Mm. Um, noting all that politics in uh, the interplay that you mentioned. Um, and then, you know, you take it step by step and then finally you get the parties mm. um, on the list. Um, and sometimes if they get off the list, it doesn't mean that they're off the report. and doesn't mean that the monitoring and reporting stops as well. Right. And, and uh, we, should, we should say that this monitoring and reporting mechanism and the, this, the, all the structures around it, and including the reports, are actually predicated on a UN Security Council resolution. So a piece of international law that, that mandates your office to produce these reports uh, and, and conduct this monitoring and reporting. So again, that that programmatic, the really practical pro civilian protection work that you do is is predicated on international law. Um, um, yeah, and it was the Security Council really that sort of articulated what violations of rights would be monitored and protected as well by the UN agency. Exactly. So you know, uh, the Security Council. Um, had recognized the, the protection of children uh, in armed conflict as a concern of international peace and security. And that's why they created this mandate and placed this issue on, on its agenda. Um, and then subsequently, I mean, this was back in 1999. And so we're now 20, 20 some years into it. So there are a lot of council resolutions on it. Um, but every year, you know, we try to push the agenda, right, uh, further yeah. and further so that we can better prevent these violations from taking place right. in the first instance, right, and not always respond to it. Yeah. Um, and part of that is also making sure that our peacekeepers are trained to, to be able to recognize these violations when they take place, to be able to report on them and to respond appropriately um, so peacekeeping the, has also evolved yeah that's been the basis of some of your more recent consulting uh, uh, work is that right um, so yeah so what I 
do now <laughs> is to train military um, who are deploying as peacekeepers to these missions. So I, I'm the civilian <laughs> on the on the team. Uh, the the rest uh, of the guys are, are military guys, and. Uh, because uh, child protection and sexual violence in conflict is led by the civilian component in peacekeeping missions. And, um, you know, uh, so I'm, I'm there really to, to train the military uh, on their roles and responsibilities and how they should collaborate and work with uh, the civilian components, but also with other UN agencies and partners on the ground. Mm. Um, because, you know, as peacekeepers are, uh, in, in many of these contexts, um, the first responders, right, they might come across children um, who have been recruited or, or raped or so on, um, and they need to know what to do. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, not to put too, too, too much emphasis on it, but peacekeepers have in the past also not just been first responders, but perpetrators. Um, of, of some of these um, uh, rights violations. Do you, so do you train them in that sense as well, like um, about where the line is in terms of their interaction with civilian populations? And, and yes, what the international do. law says about it? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a critical component of our trainings um, on sexual exploitation and abuse <laughs> and the UN standards of conduct on that. Um, you know, uh, there is zero tolerance, right? Uh, there's the zero tolerance policy, but, um, but we, we, we still see it happening, um, not just by the military peacekeepers, but civilians as well, and members of the humanitarian community, which is, which is really um, re reprehensible, in my opinion, because um, you are there to protect. Uh, mm. the communities uh, and not be the perpetrator. Uh, so yes, um, there is a certainly. Yeah. Um, uh, we've, had, we've had some background noise and, and, and your son sort of ducking into camera. So if, if I may, uh, I, I wanted to ask a little bit about how you're juggling motherhood and uh, this amazing global career that you're having. Are there sacrifices that you feel like you had to make to pursue one or the other, or now as you try and balance the two? Uh, I would, I would say yes. <laughs> um, you know, not to take away from the fact, you know, that I love being his mom, <laughs> but but there are sacrifices, obviously, and you make those choices, right? Mm. Uh, these are you know i've i've thought through them and uh i've decided i you know to start slightly change paths um so for the time being i'm back in malaysia so uh no plans to to sort of undertake missions to conflict zones or anything like that um but i still try to you know to work on these issues and i found that by training these military who are ultimately being deployed as peacekeepers, uh, training them on child protection, training them on conflict-related sexual violence, um, allows me to continue to, you know, mm. to yeah, do the work that I that I 
love, right? Uh, right? And that I find important. So it's not, in, in that sense, it's not really a sacrifice, right? But it's sort of finding another, um, an alternative, yeah, not path. I, I, I can't find the word, but something that also continues to give you that, um, that, that, um, that joy and allows you to pursue your passion uh, in terms of your career goals um, uh, and, and while, being, while being at home. <laughs> and uh, so, so now that I've, I've, I've pried into the personal life a little bit, let me ask you one follow-up. What happens when your son asks you about your work? Do you, how do you, do you, do you talk to him uh, or have you thought about when he's perhaps a little bit older? How, it's something that I struggle with, you know, uh, war and peace and rights violations. Is, these are very heavy, sad, depressing topics. I was just wondering how you've sort of broached um, this area, aspect of parenting. Um, I haven't, right? I haven't. I think he's, uh, he's, still, he's still too small. Um, when, I, when I do... Um, the trainings sometimes i've i've had to you know uh, i've had to travel to like places like bangladesh or indonesia and so on um and so he sort of understands that mommy's leaving for work um, mm. but he doesn't understand the nature of the work yet um but you know what i've started journey is i've started um creating albums of my times in the different countries because precisely for for the reasons you you know for the yeah you mentioned really to, so that later when he's slightly old enough I can show yeah. him the photos of where I've been and you know what I've done uh, and then if he has questions then you can sort of answer that right and then tackle it um, yeah. from that. That's that beautiful. Yeah. And he's going to be a very he's going to be very proud of his mummy. Let me tell you, as we all are. Uh, okay. Um, I'm conscious of time. Uh, I am, am curious. I do have a few wrap-up questions uh, as well. But what do you see sort of sitting back? Uh, I, I want you to sort of look to the future, I guess. In particular, I have two questions. One, a very practical one. What are you doing this week? Um, what's your next project that you're working on that you can share with us? Um, but then also, what's the future of you know, international law in this realm of civilian protection? Do you have hope for the future? Hmm. Uh, so your, to your first question, um, yes, so I, finally got, I finally got some work. Huh. Uh, <laughs> COVID has affected our livelihoods, uh, fortunately. Um, but I will be um, actually undertaking a consultancy with with UNICEF here um, on prevention of sexual exploitation and abuse. So UNICEF um, globally, this is part of their um, commitment and investment on trying to put in measures, right, uh, to prevent SCA and mitigate risks across the development sector. So. Um, we are training all UNICEF partners uh, on strengthening their own organizational capacities regarding 
prevention of sexual exploitation and abuse. Mm. Um, sort of that in a nutshell. Um, they all have to go through a, a risk assessment process. Mm. Um, and if they are, you know, if they don't have the necessary policies in place or training programs in place, for example, or uh, referral mechanisms in place, should they come across uh, victims of SEA, then, you know, they may be rated uh, as medium to high risk. And then we have, you know, then we're supporting them to, um, you know, develop all these, uh, develop an action plan and put in place all these measures so that they can, you know, reduce their risk. But most importantly, um, you know, be able to prevent and address SEA uh, within their own sort of communities that they are, they are serving, right? Yeah. Um, the beneficiaries that they are serving. Yeah. Great. So that. Yeah, it's a, it's a short term, short term. And the future, when you look over the horizon, oh. are you hopeful? Are you, um, what's the future of, yeah, civilian protection or child protection in armed conflict? And, or, or if, if that's, I mean, ponder that, but, but what do we need to do more in international law to protect civilians in armed conflict? How about that? I think that needs to be, well, Two things. I think you know. Uh, I think there needs to be more accountability, right, uh, for for these crimes. Um, recently, um, well, recently, uh, I mean, last year, two thousand and nineteen, um, we saw the International Criminal Court, for instance, um, finding. Um, this infamous rebel commander, uh, Bosco Ntganda, I don't know if you, if you know him, or if you've not heard personally, of him, not personally. Uh, found him guilty, <laughs> uh, found him guilty for, for crimes against humanity, for war crimes. But we, for the first time, they found him guilty for the crimes committed by the troops under his command. Right. And I think that sets an important uh, precedence and, and that, that needs to happen a lot more. Um, and it's also for the first time, I think, we, um, we see a case uh, where there was a guilty verdict for the crimes of sexual slavery. Uh, and these are, these are crimes that, yeah, you know, they have happened historically uh, in conflicts, but, um, you know, we're, we're just seeing a lot of that happening, you know, in, in many of the contemporary conflicts. Right. Um, and so I think in sh ending impunity um, should be, yeah, it, that we yeah. should focus our efforts on that. Um, and, um, and I think then, then that's the prevention aspect, right? So I think we're very good at responding as an international community, be it the UN or civil society organizations or even national authorities. Mm. Um, but we haven't sat back to think of how do we prevent these from happening in the first place, right? How do we strengthen the capacities of, of the government to be able to um, address these concerns, right? Whether it's their security sector, whether it's their rule of law, um, and so on and so forth. Um, you know, like, I know there's a lot of uh, research actually ongoing right now on how do we prevent recruitment and use of children? Um, for instance, right? So, we're, so yeah, we do all these DDR programs, 
right? But that's responding, right? How, and, and we understand sort of this, the structural concerns um, around poverty and lack of education and youth bulge and, and so on. So in all these factors that may drive children um, into the arms of armed groups. But then, but then, you know, children also have a sense of resilience, right? And mm. a lot of children who, who grow up in the same context don't join armed groups. So why is that? Mm. You know, uh, and we need to explore that a lot more. Right. And what are some of the warning signs? What are some of the early warning indicators that would signal to us that um, children might be recruited uh, mm. or children might be driven into armed groups? Or, mm. you know, what are the push and pull factors, right? Yeah. Beyond those big socioeconomic issues, you know? Um, and then how do we address those? So, yeah, so... It's uh, I, I, no, it's a great it's a it's a great work agenda for 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 us all. Um, fantastic, um, Shri. So um, let me end with some light, more light um, questions. Heroes that have come before you, who do you draw inspiration from? Ah. <laughs> I, I think a couple of people. Uh, when I joined the UN in New York, I, I was inspired by um, the special representative of the Secretary, Secretary General then, uh, Mr. Olara Otunu uh, from Uganda. Um, and that kind of cemented my desire to, you know, to, to continue on, on this path, right? Working on the protection of children in armed conflict. Uh, he has his flaws, but he was really an inspiring individual. Um, and um, that, was, that was when I started off. But, but then when I was already doing the work, um, really drew my inspiration from the, the children really i mean i don't know whether it's 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 very it's like a, it's a cliche to say that or, or very cheesy to say that but it's true i mean you know i was in somalia and uh you know i met uh the father of two little girls um who who were raped right and you know a really joyful um fun little girls but who at that very young age had already undergone a you know a, a traumatic experience that no child should but that's the reality for thousands and thousands of of children and civilians in these conflict communities and um that affected me that that particularly particular meeting affected me very deeply and um and uh yeah and i continue to uh to think about them they, they are probably grown women <laughs> by now but still i you know i think about them and you know uh, and, and and that drives me i guess so Beautiful. yeah they are my little heroes <laughs> or <Beautiful>. heroes <laughs> heroes um best best book you've read on international law 
that's a tough question. Or that impacts uh, your work, you know, in, in civilian protection. Best book, um, fiction, non-fiction. Oh my goodness. Um, I have to say that I haven't been reading very much uh, in the past few years. We've heard the reason why. It's all good. <laughs> uh, but if, if, I would, if I would recommend, you know, I would definitely recommend reading the books by Ishmael Bea. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think Ishmael has a new book. Um, the new book meaning uh, it was published uh, maybe two three years ago which uh, i bought but uh, i haven't i haven't started on it yes uh, i do the same uh, yeah. <laughs> and um you know for your for your listeners ishmael was a former child soldier uh, from liberia um, but now a, a strong advocate on protection of children in armed conflict yeah. Fantastic. And best best movie you've seen oh related to your journey. work? Um, or or that, that, you know, best movie on international law that everyone should go out and, and watch? Oh, nothing comes to mind, Johnny, right now. It's all good. All good. Um, what about, how about this? What's your favourite international law moment in history? International law moment. Oh, yeah. I'll so, tell you this. Um, oh, oh, you okay? <laughs> I think. Oh, uh, well, I'll I'll narrate the story, and you tell me if it yeah. sort of, you know, answers your question. Um, it was actually uh, my meetings with the Moro Islamic Liberation Front, um, who have been um, denying the that they had children. Um, associated with their group for the longest time, despite having signed the agreement. Um, when I sat down to meet with them initially, it was always, oh, no, you know, um, you know, children were drawn to it because, you know, because of the circumstances of the conflict and we did not have a policy, you know, well and good. Uh, but the fact was, they kept saying, you know, we, we didn't have children associated with us, you know. Um, and and then there was that light bulb moment um, when they when the, the the person I was negotiating with uh, or the, the the person who led the the panel on the MILF side uh, looked at me and he said, "Okay, we don't deny, right? We recruited and used children." Um, we don't have a policy, but we recruited and used children. And when the leadership said, ah, you know, but how, where, where, where were the children? You know, uh, the children are too small. They, they, they're not able to carry these heavy weapons, you know. So um, what do you mean we recruited and used children? And then this MILF person who represented the leadership turned around and said, but you know, the children were the ones who pulled the horses who were carrying the weapons. So they are our child soldiers. So I think for me, that was a turning point. 
really and that really then you know slowly slowly uh, three mm. years later right we managed to get all the yeah thousand eight hundred something children amazing uh, yeah. amazing i'm almost done i can tell you have uh, priorities um um sweet it, do you have any advice to students of international law that are listening to this now? What would you, what what would you, you know, have liked to have heard when you were way back in a uni student? What what what, what advice would, I have, what advice would, would you give oh. for someone that wants a a career in international law? Um, yeah, I think uh, I would say go for it. <laughs> uh and yeah and take it to the next realm if you can you know uh it's 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 an important it's an important uh qualification to have and i think it will take you far and i think with that uh, with that degree you can really um genuinely um and directly impact impact lives on the ground um, so, um, you know, you can also make a lot of money if you, if, if you want from it, but I would, um, I would certainly recommend, uh, if I, honestly in hindsight, right, if I, if I, um, had, sorry, Johnny, if I had somebody who could, who gave me advice when I was, uh, yeah. in my early twenties, um, I wish I had someone who, who showed me the path to um, the law or to political science even, mm. um, you know, uh, no, there was nobody to guide me. Uh, mm. and, and so for all those young people who now are at that cusp of making an important decision on the path that they want to take, um, please, you know, uh, international law is, is, is a good path to take mm. but also keep in mind um the the people on the ground who are who are living in these difficult contexts mm. and if you can apply what you learn to making their lives better um yeah why not mm. right why not um Shree, my final question it's a fill in the blank it's a really easy one international law is Fill in the blank. Uh, international law is. <laughs> uh, the, the easiest questions are always the hardest to answer, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> um, international law is important to ending impunity for crimes against women and children. Fantastic. Shri, um, there endeth uh, the interview. I, I, I can't help but say that um, when I was prepping for, for this interview, I also was reading a little bit about the life and times of John Lewis, who was a civil rights icon in the United States and someone I have had the good fortune of sort of uh, uh, mixing with in the flesh when I used to work in Washington. And there was a quote he, he, of his that um, I just thought, well, I read the quote and then I instantly thought of you uh, as, you know, the embodiment of it. So I just wanted to sort of 
read, read the quote and, and end on this, if, if you don't mind. Um, John Lewis, a US civil rights icon, said, do not get lost in a sea of despair. Be hopeful, be optimistic. Our struggle is not the struggle of a day, a week, a month or a year. It is the struggle of a lifetime. Never ever be afraid to make some noise and get in good trouble, necessary trouble. Yes. And I feel That's like you, you, you've gotten into some necessary trouble uh, over your career and, um, and the world is a better place for it. So uh, Sri Nadaraja, thank you for making the world a better place. Thank you, Johnny, for this opportunity. Really, I'm truly humbled by your words. And, um, you know, just remember, I, I'm, I'm a, a small fish in this huge ocean. And all of you, um, you know, have a role to play and you are all playing an important role. Um, you know, it's a collective effort, isn't it? Indeed. Um, all right. Well, um, thank you very much for tuning in. Um, and thank you, Shri, for uh, joining us. Um, I don't know about you, Shri, but I'm going to go and give my boys a big hug now. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Sounds all like right. a plan. Thank you. Take care. Thanks, Johnny. Better Place Talking International Law is produced and edited by Keith Hibbert, advised and supported by Neil Grant, and hosted by Jonathan Kolib. Music supplied by Ian Post. The Better Place team thank RMIT University for supporting this project, and we acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation on whose unceded land we work. We respectfully acknowledge their ancestors and elders, past, present and future.